Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you were listening to the Bill Simmons podcast this year. We stepped it up with the guests. I don't even have time to list all of them, but let's just say we have had a who's who of A-listers, A-minus-listers, B-plus-listers in sports, pop culture, movies, music. I mean, where else can you get Kevin Durant, Steve Ballmer, Jimmy Iovine, and Charlize Theron in the span of six weeks? Nowhere. The answer is nowhere. You can find that literally nowhere other than the Bill Simmons podcast. We are in year 11. It's been an honor to do it. Hope you subscribe. The Bill Simmons podcast. Check it out. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. David, Donald Trump thinks he didn't get enough credit for getting three UCLA basketball players back from China after they were accused of shoplifting. Oh, man. And we're not going to talk about that story on the press box this week. This is a monumental press box development. It really is. What an ignorable story that is for meta media analysis. In some ways, it fits perfectly into our rubric. And and yet you're right. It's just so easy to ignore. If we were headlining the faux highbrow media piece on this, what do you think it would be? Oof. I'm constructing the newspaper headline. (laughs) The Times headline? Oh my gosh, I have no idea. I, I think great, the, great the great balls of China or whatever it doesn't quite <laughs> it doesn't quite convey the the shoplifting charge. I'm not I don't, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I was thinking if we went highbrow, it was Donald Trump, LiAngelo Ball, and the dawn of the March Madness presidency. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Also, it was a think piece anybody would read. Yeah, I said that for UCLA. There's there's trouble brewing in China. <laughs> oh no! This is the press box on the Ringer Podcast Network. This is the Press Box, the media podcast where you're not allowed to use the phrase, the power of the press belongs only to those who own one. (laughs) I'm Brian Curtis, Ringer Editor-at-Large. He's David Shoemaker, Ringer's Art Director, Writer, Podcaster. David, three topics for your inspection this week. Number one, Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore and the age of new media denial. How's that for a highbrow headline? I'm into it, man. Uh, Second, Tina Brown. And the Twilight of the Magazine Editor. I wrote lots of faux, faux highbrow headlines this week. And finally, fun with post-game locker room quotes. Oof. And a special segment this week. We normally do overlook Twitter, or excuse me, overwork Twitter joke of the week. This week, headline puns. Let's do it, man. Number one, Roy Moore, David. There was a November 9th piece in the Washington Post that contained the testimony of one Lee Korfman, who said that when she was 14... 32-year-old Roy Moore, who's now, of course, the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate race in Alabama, had a sexual encounter, as the Post put it, with her. The Post named three other women ages 16 to 18 that Moore pursued during this period, and then later a fifth woman, Beverly Young Nelson, came forward and charged Moore with sexually assaulting her when she was 16 years old. The Post piece was about as devastating and solid a piece of reportage as you can imagine. Sure. And then we fell down this weird media rabbit hole, at which point an alleged sex scandal became a media scandal of sorts, or at least a media (laughs) story of sorts. I think we should stipulate up front that what we're talking about strictly the media angle on this. I mean, this is, you know, this is this is, you know, part five in a one million part series about sexual indiscretion in media. Um, But. You know, uh, less less we be seen as as you know erecting a, a copy of the Ten Commandments in our front yard and then get called out on something in our own lives later on. We're we're just covering the media side of oh, it. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Which which I think was a weirdly a fascinating story in and of itself. Before before the post piece was even published, uh huh. <laughs> Breitbart 
whose leader, uh, Steve Bannon, of course, oh, helped God. push more to victory in the GOP primary, ran a story saying that the Post story was coming. Right. So this all started before we even had the hunk of investigative journalism. It's a little bit shades of Donald Trump Jr. like re- releasing his emails before the story on his emails could come out. Or is that was that the sequence of events? There, there, there was leaks of it, but, but getting out ahead, getting out ahead of a story that you know is coming is sort of the new way of like preventively not having to deny the story, or it's some evidence of. It's it's the implication of denial without the substance of denial. Yeah, it's a pre-denial. Yeah. Because they called it, the Moore campaign in this initial Breitbart piece called it fake news. Right. But this is before it was news. Yeah. <laughs> and then Axios later reports on November 12th that, that Steve Bannon and, and Breitbart had sent two reporters to Alabama to, as Axios said, discredit the Washington Post reporting. So the Post piece is out by this point. Right. And now Breitbart is sending reporters to Alabama to try to gather information. Right. Uh, so Roy Moore is the Breitbart candidate in no uncertain terms. Yes. Steve Bannon recruited him to run for the Senate. He appeared on his behalf uh, at campaign events and celebrated with him uh, when he won the election. Yes. Right. And uh, what what's Donald in- Trump endorsed Roy Moore's opponent. Right. And then the Breitbart anti-mainstream media stance is – uh, semi separate from this, although clearly un like inextricable from this in this particular story, the fact that they're trying to take down the Washington Post as a specific cause in react because of the connection to Roy Moore, yeah. But it's part of a bigger tapestry of the more we can discredit the mainstream media, the 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 more power we seem to gather for ourselves. The streams are crossing in the Ghostbuster sense. Of <laughs> yes. We like Roy Moore because he is a Trumpy candidate, right. populist candidate, and we like taking down and sabotaging the mainstream media. And this is one of those stories that gives us the chance to do both of those things at once. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so should we crawl further down the rabbit hole? Keep crawling, oh, man. We're, we're not done. No, this keeps going. November 12th, <laughs> this is the headline exclusive on Breitbart still, still on Breitbart, exclusive, mother of the Roy Moore accuser, Washington Post reporters convinced my daughter to go public. So (laughs) as many people noted on Twitter, yes, the Washington Post people called and and convinced her to go on the record in an article. And this is what is known as journalism. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it also I mean, it shouldn't be you can't really you can't really separate that from a lot of the sort of weirder, weirder parts of the Internet that are criticizing some of the women who've come forward with other sexual uh, allegations of sexual indiscretion, the Weinstein stories, whatever else. There's a lot of there's people out there all in message boards far and wide and comment sections that are that are uh, that that assume that 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 some of these people are lying strictly because they came forward at a time uh, of great media attention. Right. And also when with the Senate, not quite hanging in the balance, but the Republican advantage in the Senate hanging in the balance. Right. So yes, like absolutely. This would take it down to 51. Right. The, the and, and yeah, the implication with that piece about from the mother was that she would only like that the, the, the Washington Post is kind of gaming this, that they're that they're pushing these stories so as to discredit Roy Moore and so as to lose him the election because the Washington Post are implicitly liberal. That is, yeah, that has been Roy Moore's contention, of course, too, right. for the, the entire thing. Uh, let's go further. Keep going. This is from Slate. On his radio show, Rush Limbaugh reminded listeners that Moore was a Democrat at the time his misconduct allegedly <laughs> occurred. Did you know that before 1992, when a lot of this was going on, 
that Judge Moore was a Democrat? You didn't know that? So his mind was perverted yes. by the fact that he was a Democrat and later became part a of the really confusing post-Civil War <laughs> switching of parties narrative, I think. I don't know. Right. So then still later in the story. So now so now we have the pre-buttle to right. the Mora and Moore story. Yes. We have Breitbart actually actively trying to find information to to knock it down. Right. We have Breitbart sort of learning what journalism is. We have Rush Limbaugh Democrat thing. Now to continue, there is a, a Twitter account randomly claims that a friend, quote unquote, this person on Twitter, uh, offered was offered $1,000 by a Washington Post reporter named Beth. Beth Reinhardt was one of the Post reporters who actually broke the story. Uh-huh. So is alleging journalistic malfeasance just randomly, which, of course, was then picked up by elements of the right wing media and actually retweeted by a GOP congressman named Billy Long from Missouri uh-huh. just retweeted the accusation. Wait, who made this accusation? Some some random person on Twitter. Okay. Some some random person on Twitter. So so now we have this just kind of, you know, this person's this reporter's you know, honesty being called into question by a random Twitter account, but in the world we live in that becomes a thing, right? Right. Then and now we're we're rounding we're rounding third here. A robocall, this is how the Washington Post (laughs) describes it, a pastor in Alabama said he received a voicemail Tuesday from a man falsely claiming to be a reporter with the Washington Post and seeking women to, quote, willing to make damaging remarks about Roy Moore in exchange for money. And the reporter's name, the fake reporter's name on the robocall was Bernie Bernstein. (laughs) Not loaded at all. No, sir. No, sir. They actually, this is the, this is the readout of this. This is how fake this was. (laughs) <laughs> this is what the call said. I'm a reporter for the Washington Post calling to find out if anyone at this address is a female between the ages of 54 and 47 willing to make damaging remarks about candidate Roy Moore for a reward of between 5,000 and 7,000. <laughs> what a strange, stilted way to just put that. The other thing that was amazing to me about this from the media angle is that the media, the weird media hero, or at least not anti-hero that emerged was Sean Hannity. Oh, yeah. Who not only kind of conducted a fairly decent interview with Roy Moore on his radio show, but then goes on Tuesday night on Fox and says, For me, the judge has 24 hours. You must immediately and fully come up with a satisfactory explanation for your inconsistencies that I just showed. You must remove any doubt. If you can't do this, then Judge Moore needs to get out of this race. Correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, first of all, let's not give him too, too much credit for the radio interview. He, Roy Moore was tripping all over himself in a way that it was really, you know, this was not like, like you know, Hugh Hewitt, uh, you know, deftly dragging Donald Trump through the intricacies of, of geopolitics or whatever. They, Roy, Roy Moore's performance was pretty laughable in that. But the second, the 24-hour statement by Sean Hannity was... Did did the yearbook come out in between those two things, and he was reacting to the to the yes the fifth accuser. And the fifth accuser was uh, Beverly yes uh, Beverly Young Nelson, who had evidence in the form of a high school yearbook that Roy Moore signed at a Waffle House or something, uh, and that was and that was finally what spurred Sean Hannity to say, "You have twenty four hours to really convince me, or you know, get out of the race." Exactly. Now, you know, Sean Hannity can say get out of the race. He's not obviously a, a member of the Republican establishment in, a, in an official way. And even if he were, you know, members of the Republican establishment asking Roy Moore to get out of the race doesn't seem to make any difference for the Moore campaign. Um, but it weirdly feels like a bigger blow to lose Sean Hannity than to lose Mitch McConnell. Sure. Yeah. Which is kind of which is another weird element of the world we now live in. It's very, very strange. <laughs> the Senate majority leader. 
is less powerful in this case than guy on Fox News. Yeah, I mean, sir, it, this isn't the first time that we've had a God-fearing, righteous politician who has had a some, you know, sexual indiscretion in their past. However, you, I mean, that's broadly defined. Obviously, this is a pretty particular situation. This isn't cheating on your wife. But, you know, I think for people like Hannity and certainly for for other Republicans, this is the finest line that they have to walk, especially if you're someone like Hannity or even Breitbart, you know, although they they're, you know, they're they're selectively secular, I guess, over at the at Breitbart HQ. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't think Hannity can afford to just be blase about these sorts of accusations. Do we think this whole strange war on the post and on the various women who've come forward is mostly accountable by Donald Trump declared war on the media, mm-hmm. like many Republicans before him, but to a greater degree, and that this is, you know, a a front in that war? Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of just kind of disparate thoughts on it. One, I mean, one thing that you left out, uh, and maybe you did this on purpose because how deep, we don't want this rabbit hole to get just in, impossibly deep, but the new my new thing that I that I spent way too much time uh, reading last night was this sort of, I think somebody called it yearbook trutherism on Twitter today, but it, this, <laughs> there are just hordes and hordes of people on Reddit and other places who are trying to prove that this yearbook signature is false by handwriting analysis and the color of the ink and all this kind of stuff. And, and there was one just like, you know, brave journalist who just got a copy of the yearbook and was just trying, just saying, I'm not going to say this is true or false, but I mean, let me just page by page expl- or instance by instance, explain why, some of the things here are real, you know, I mean, just like how this is an act. This could have been a yearbook that came out around December. It's just so bizarre. Um, I think that it's all evidence of, of hyperpartisanship. I mean, in that case, the idea that you would, that anyone would spend any significant amount of time trying to disprove or trying to find fault with the color of ink and the page uh, pages of a 30 year old yearbook and not spend a single moment actually wondering whether or not Roy Moore could have done any of the things he's charged with is evidence of blinding partisanship. Yeah, the Tommy Veter, who was an Obama official and uh, former Ringer podcaster, uh-huh. pointed out on Twitter that 29% of Alabama voters, according to one poll, said they were oh. more likely to vote for Roy Moore right. after learning what they learned. In their defense, I mean, this is not a full-throated defense, but but... Um, no matter what you think of the, you know, fake, fake news, lying media meme or line of thought, um, journalists, journalists defending journalism in vague terms is not a winning argument, right? If you turn on MSNBC and there's people on there who are just like, this does a disservice to good journalism, like that doesn't convince even the people that are watching MSNBC because they're liberals and they like the channel. It's a tough sell. It's a tough sell. I mean, just the, the concept of good journalism is just inherently self-righteous, right? I mean, it's just like we're all working so hard at this. Please don't disparage the form. Yeah, it is. It is both righteous and self-righteous. Yes. It's also righteous, but it's just really hard to get anybody to pay attention. <laughs> right. I, I like what you said about hyperpartisanship because you know what this reminded me of was Bill O'Reilly in a sense. Mm. And to go back a couple of scandals ago, um, he created Bill O'Reilly created this universe where everything could be read as a partisan gesture. Yeah. Everything that happened is, oh, those those liberals going to get you. This is conservative. This is conservatism, boy. You know, here we go. 
And when you create this kind of self-made universe, then anything that happens to you, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> any investigation about something you allegedly did, you go, ah, oh, it's a liberal witch hunt. Right. They're out. There are some people who are afraid of me, afraid of my power, and they're out to get me. Right. And that's essentially what Roy Moore's doing. I mean, if you read his quotes, that's exactly what he's saying. But you've created, you person have created the world that is so hyper-partisan where everything can be read as a partisan gesture. So then you get this get out of jail free card, maybe not literally in this case, but where you get to just anytime someone criticizes you or reports about you, you just describe it as partisanship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's, the the, you know, this is this is a weird parallel, but hey, it's the press box. So let's go there. It it made me my mind went to Jay Caspian Kang's very good piece on uh, Barstool Sports in The New York Times this week and the kind of recurring chorus that ESPN just doesn't speak to people of that gener- of my generation anymore, right? I mean, there's a lot of ways you can look at that. And this is something that we've talked about before. Um, you know, it used to be that ESPN view- watching was a thing that you picked up from your dad watching at his knee or, you know, whatever, that it was something that was passed down. Now it's clearly not that like that, that w- it, when, when given an alternative, in this case, something like, like Barstool, Barstool's making this populist case that we are, you know, we're everything that they don't want you to have, or like this is we're trying to bring sports back to where it should be. Um, but but the idea that ESPN doesn't speak to me, that like you can just blanket say that this institution is not catering to me in this way, is it's it, it's a similar sort of partisanship, right? I mean, it's that you look at this, like you can look at the idea of like the Washington Post and think that they're like actively trying to trying to you know, cater to someone who's not you. No, they're just, they're providing news. You know, if they're, if, if there's slants, then so be it. But like, they're not trying to get you to change the channel or to stop reading the newspaper. That's, it's just sort of crazy. Yeah. And it's probably even easier in this case, because everybody had, has watched ESPN at some point. Everyone has at least an idea of what ESPN was or is. Right. And some person who just happens to vote in an election may have never read the Washington Post, sure. even online, or just glanced at a couple of articles, What doesn't know the, what the institution is at all. Sure. I, I mean, and, so and to, the, to make the case that they're the other is is probably a lot easier. Sure. And you see the same people that sort of rail against the mainstream media from this position of populism are happy to, like, like, like Bannon, are happy to take that walk right into the New York Times headquarters to get the giant profile written about himself. You know, the same thing. I mean, like these Barstool guys, I'm sure would talk shit about the New York Times all day if given an opportunity or a cause, but they're very happy to have a lengthy profile of them written in the in the mainstream media that's catering towards people that's not their audience. Absolutely. The siren song of media. Yeah. So usually at this time, David, we do the overworked Twitter joke of the week. A little cleanup from last week. We talked last week about Atlas Shrubbed. <laughs> that was, remember, the overworked joke about Rand Paul's fight that <laughs> right. might have involved yes, lawn I care. Yes, well. Uh, Marcus Gilmer tweeted uh, this week uh, at us to to also note that the Bowling Green massacre was a well-used Twitter joke last week. Remember, that was offered by the Trump administration as a terror attack that didn't happen. Right. Rand Paul's thing was actually in Bowling Green. <laughs> so the Bowling Green massacre. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Marcus, for that. Um, but today we're going to talk about headline puns. I was... Um, the Kenneth Branagh reboot of Murder on the Orient Express came out last week. And Joaquin Nagel tweeted, noting that literally every negative review of the movie declared that that went went off the rails, veered off the rails <laughs> or jumped the rails. In one case, I saw another review call it a train wreck um, and even a kind of positive uh, profile of Branagh I was reading said all aboard. 
in the headline. So I thought we should just, we should just talk about headline puns for a second, which has always just amused me as a journalist. That's so great. I mean, some of talk about overwork, some of the most overworked, excruciatingly so things ever in journalism. Right. I had an old boss, Edward Felsenthal, who's now the editor of Time. And he, he once told me that every story ever written about aquariums is titled, This is the Dawning of the Age of Aquariums. <laughs> I'm not sure how many aquarium stories have actually ever been written, but what an easy punch. Anyway, I came up with some bad headline power rankings. You ready to read a few, ready to hear a few of these? Let's do it, man. Okay, here's some headlines. I just wince whenever I see the sun also rises. S-O-N. Oh, no. Sun. Okay. Any story about George W. Bush, Donald Trump Jr. will do. this. Uh, recently, the San Diego State basketball coach, whose dad was also a coach, got the sun also rises. Also, there's a Pierce Brosnan AMC show called The Sun. <laughs> right. And there were some headlines that The Sun also rises. Wow. Great headline. Uh, great headline there. Number two, any story about Vladimir Putin that is called a czar is born. <laughs> the new issue of The Economist has that. Oh, no. The 2007 issue of Time that <laughs> declared Putin the person of the year also the also carried the headline. A czar is born. Uh, number three, any story about a pro wrestlers outside the <laughs> ring issues that is called wrestling with <laughs> dot, 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 oh. demons, shadows. <laughs> reality one, reality there's a good one also i noticed there was a recent booker t article on his run for mayor of houston uh-huh. called wrestling with success wow so wrestling with number two is a particular one to me because i've read so many nfl draft previews in my life when you're talking about defensive backs and your little mini section is called the safety dance oh no about safeties and i know that that sounds really obscure but it was in the la times last week i swear <laughs> Safety dance. Don't ever call that. Number one, with a bullet. Lies, damned lies, and blank. Yes. Recent ones are, and political money, and White House generals. Okay. You know. Wow. Yeah. Don't don't ever use that, please. I think I made that joke last week. <laughs> Topic number two, David. On Tuesday, the legendary editor, Tina Brown, published the Vanity Fair Diaries her previously private chronicle of her years editing Vanity Fair. Tina happens to be my old boss. I remember. Well, we were roommates in uh, the Lower East Side when you were working for Tina Brown. Yeah, at the Daily Beast. Yeah. Remember that? I, I remember it well. It was... It I remember was, a lot of real... I remember like a lot of really, really early mornings and a, and a lot of really late nights. I, there, was a, there was a stretch where I, <laughs> I didn't see you very much. It was an amazing thing about Tina. She's being... She's getting a round of tributes, big piece in the New Yorker this week, but... Yeah, when I would wake up in the morning at an incredibly early hour, I would notice that she had emailed me at like 1230 after I had gone to bed and then also at 430 in the morning. So right. she had she had been emailing me after I went to sleep and before I woke up <laughs> simultaneously. I always loved that. Also, when I met her, when she was interviewing me for the job in 2008, someone sent her some of my clips and she said, Brian, I like you except for your unfortunate preoccupation with sport. <laughs> Singular sport. I love that. Uh, My other great memory of her is that she was always working. She always seemed to be pushing so fast, so furiously, you know, just trying to do so many things that in her email, she eliminated verbs. She just didn't use verbs. Just like they what? Were, she was just like typing stuff out. So let me give you, let me give you an example. So okay. one time I had a piece that I had edited by Mike Schaefer 
And she wasn't familiar. It was a really funny story. And I sent it to her, you know, the night before something. And she wasn't familiar with her and said, wasn't familiar with Mike. So she wrote back and said, this inspired who this and how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) That was sort of Tina without verbs. I love that. Um, (laughs) It's an amazing week to think about her because I feel we're at the end of this era of the great, well-paid, taste-making Lincoln town car writing creature known as the magazine editor. Yeah. Graydon Carter stepping down after 25 years of Andy Fair. Sure. This giant Joe Hagen book about Jan Winter and what a colossus he was yeah. in his time. And there's still Anna Wintour is still at a Moss, but we're, we're at the end of this, right? This is, this, this is passing from the world, the person that Tina Brown was and could be, and you couldn't even be that if you wanted to anymore. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, there's, uh, there, uh, I think, you know, you and I both came up uh, through, you know, the New York media world um, in an era where we, I mean, it was already fading, but there was, but, you know, I, I don't think anybody of our, of, of our age bracket didn't, you know, in, in New York in those years, didn't imagine them, themselves in Tina or Greg and Carter's corner office one day. Right. I mean, that was the job that everyone aspired to. And as as you know, is discussed in the uh, in the New Yorker profile, uh, Nathan Teller's New Yorker profile of Tina Brown. All of the stories are side kind of up from the bootstrap stories. You know, you sort of imagine yourself as this as this uh, protagonist that, that somehow achieves really the seat of power. And I think that, you know, they were holdovers from a, a not too far, not too long ago era. And, and and this is what I think is is really key in which reaching the heights of the literary or journalistic world was as good as being any other kind of superstar. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, right? Yeah, I mean, she was. She talked about there, there's a there's a line in the New Yorker piece about she kind of apologizes for all the celebrities in the '80s, you know, that she mentions in her, and she's like, "Oh, it was the '80s," but it was also, I mean, yeah, this was this was the era of. Famous writers like holding court at the biggest clubs in the city. You know, I mean, this was it was a real it, it was it was it was an aspirational moment, I think, in the journalism and just literary world at large in, in a lot of different ways. And um, yeah, if it's the twilight of the magazine editor, it's also the twilight of the overpaid magazine writer. Yes. Yeah, for Six sure. Six figure salary, book yeah. deal, movie deal after your pieces. And and both, I mean, and Greg Carter, who had been at Vanity Fair for the longest time, you know, had a stable of writers who had been his his writers for, for forever. That, Spine, that was, the Observer and everything. Yeah, the people that he, you know, he made into wealthy, successful people. And Tina Brown, the same way. Obviously, you know, Tina Brown was at Vanity Fair in a, in a previous, you know, previous iteration of Tina Brown. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, she her her career um, is just just really amazing. And I and I I knew who she was when you were working for her, but it, it took me it like it it wasn't. Um, I mean, it just seems so alien that you would be working for someone like Tina Brown, right? Just this sort of like grand figure of publishing. Um, and it's interesting now that we're that it's it's already that, like you said the era is the era is ending. Yeah, I mean, she was so big. I remember, you know, you and I were provincials, right? Growing up in Texas, we were not we were not the sons and daughters of, of these of magazine editors and writers and all this stuff, right? No. And I remember at UT going and buying the first issue of Talk, 
because yeah. it was such a big deal. I think I bought it at like a Barnes and Noble. I was like very intent on buying. It, it even penetrated to us yeah. that she was doing this big thing. And mm-hmm. that was amazing. I mean, it's amazing to me that the new model of this is Simmons. It's Benton Smith. Yeah. It's Lydia Polgreen at HuffPo. Yeah. And it's still an amazing job, but it's just totally different because, I mean, I think in the in the sense, you know, I mean, Bill's sensibility is all over the ringer as it was all over Grantland for sure. But there's just so you publish so much now that you just can't that no editor can have their hands on every piece of text. Yeah. And every photo caption. Sure. Like, you know, Graydon Carter and, and Kurt Anderson did at Spy. It's just impossible. Right. Well, you could write the whole magazine with two people and a bunch of pseudonyms or something like that, you know? Um, and it talked about Tina Tina Brown in her early days in this New Yorker piece writing, was it at the Tatler that she was like, you know, writing like social, you know, pieces about this, about the social life uh, under a pseudonym herself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she told me one time she always dreamed of having a column under the name Sarsaparilla. <laughs> I don't know what Sarsaparilla She could have made that happen. About. Yeah, I mentioned this to you before we were recording, but one of the most kind of breathtaking just concepts in the piece was the idea of, you know, Tina Brown kind of take forming each episode, I mean, each episode, each issue of Vanity Fair. And sometimes that would mean cutting multiple features, like five features <laughs> at, you know, just just to get the perfect balance of the different element, you know, the different types of stories she wanted to tell, the different genres, the different subject matters, certainly very little sport, uh, you know, in that mix. But just like you were saying, with all the stuff that people, I mean, just the idea of our boss, Sean Fennessy, taking five feature stories and just put and just like putting them in a drawer or just, dry, you know, put dropping them in the garbage can, can and still paying, you know, paying the kill fee or even the full amount to the writer. I'm saying, oh, well, sorry, that didn't work out. You yeah, know, yeah. Let's try something just, else. That just didn't fit in the ringer on, uh, you know, December 1st, 2017. Here's a plane ticket. Fly somewhere else and write something. Yeah. You know, it's too, And I, I saw it as a Daily Beast, too. You know, she was known for having this great spidey sense of what was going to be interesting. Sure. You know, what would be where she could look around the corner in a way other people couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I saw this at the Daily Beast, like when Madoff happened, like the night that ha- the night he went down, she was in the office saying, this is going to be huge, you know, understanding in a way that I was looking at a Wall Street Journal story going, what? Yeah. You know, and of course it did become huge, but everything just moved too fast, you know, and it's hard. Again, you can have writers that I think can see around corners and mm-hmm. lead you to these things and, and trust, but it's hard for an editor to do everything. So I think that's one reason, you know, that yeah. the job's so different. And the other one is, so we publish so much. Yeah. It's just like, there's just no way to get your arms around everything now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, all the mistake of all websites at, at some level is just trying to do too many things. Sure. And, you know, I remember her just being at the Daily Beast. It's like, what are we going to do? You know, we could do anything. Yeah. We could be about politics. We could be about culture. We could be about everything. Yeah. And it's just really hard to then steer that ship when it's going in like in 15 different directions. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, comparing it to to the sort of Tina Browns of the modern world and, you know, who those people would be. I mean, the fact of the matter is that it's at almost every institution that's multiple people, right? To have the same person, to have the same person who's literally editing, like line editing a piece, or even just conceptually editing, uh, you know, the shape of a magazine, be the, being the same person who is who is um, 
you know, reaching out to get to to try to score a photo shoot with President Reagan and Nancy, you know, like there's to have like there's two very, very different parts of any media corporation right now, you know, and she, um, and she and to be clear, she had distinct people doing those things okay. in the good old days. Right? Yeah. It was not and she was not line edit doing a ton of line editing. All right. But still, I mean, but it it is, was, it's you a, had this whole it's a of, much more manageable job. And there's there's the sort of con I think it was mentioned in the in the New Yorker piece that she was, you know, she wanted one one something in the magazine for everyone, right? The, the the implication being that like you would pick up Vanity Fair because of this story or that story and then conceivably read the whole thing. Sure. You know, imagine in 2017, it, I, it reading five feature feature length stories that you had no, that you didn't think you had any intention of reading. Right. <laughs> right. Imagine a magazine. Exactly. <laughs> like just imagine like that. It's, it's crazy. Like we're all, we self-select everything that we consume now. Yeah. The only time you ever read anything that's like you wouldn't normally read is when you get the third recommendation, you know, on Twitter about something. Totally. I and mean, she's, and in her idea is like, okay, you're going to buy this because Daryl Hannah's on the cover. Yeah. It's like a great picture. But then you're going to go in and go, ooh, a James, you know, James Wolcott column <laughs> and, you know, and then Dominic Dunn. Yeah. And then my big, you know, high flying feature writers, you know, that's just, yeah, that's that idea. I mean, the idea that you could be this person that's taking all these disparate elements and putting it under one roof, mm -hmm. you know, these things that are totally not just running a bunch of stuff, but putting it all under one into one package, as they say. Right? Yeah. That used to be the great packaging, you know, as a magazine term that you don't hear very much anymore. The real compelling thing to me as as a former, uh, a recently former New Yorker was just the sort of love-hate relationship with the city, which I think everyone who's lived in New York for any stretch of time, uh, you know, can can associate with. Um, did, was that part of her personality when you knew her or had she no. settled? No, I think she's very much a creature of New York. I think that comes out in the in in the in I'm sure in her in her diaries, but certainly in the in the piece. Yeah, I think she I think she had, she had you know she was she was from she had moved from London to edit Vanity Fair mm -hmm. essentially. So I think she had probably those whatever those yearnings were she had long since buried them. Right. By the time I knew her, I found a couple of interview quotes from her funny and she did an interview with Time. I don't miss the dinner parties. I mean, I just remember Tina having endless parties when <laughs> I worked for her. They would put the furniture in a moving truck and drive it around the streets and then have big parties in their houses, in their house on the, and I'm, you're looking at me like I'm crazy, but that's actually <laughs> what happened on the Upper East Side. Like you have, have you invite people to your townhouse. Yes. You need to make space. Yes. And the absence of, you know, uh, easily functional attics or, or basements as most people in the world, you know, in America have, you have such limited space. You, you load all of your furniture onto a, into a moving truck and th that doesn't even go to a storage facility itself. <laughs> it just drives around for five hours. I hope I'm not repeating an urban legend, but I'm pretty sure that was, that was the story. The other no. thing she said is I can't, I was always envious of men who could wing it. I can't wing it. There's something about British journalists that they're always winging it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's British journal, right? You know, one can, we call that hackery. Right. But on the other hand, it's like, to me, to me, Tina was, was constantly winging it. Like in a good way. I mean, yeah. that was that was her thing, right? It's like she wouldn't know about a lot of the stuff, but she would, you know, could kind of figure it out. I and mean, that's what magazine magazine at great at magazines are always winging to bringing them something unfamiliar, and they're saying, sure. "Here's how to tell that story within within the confines of our it's the space. whole concept of of the pitch, right? I mean, you need to convince someone this is a story worth telling. The other thing I think it's amazing about those old days that we don't see anymore is the credentialism and the fact that there was this elite writer class. 
Mm-hmm. And I saw this, you know, with the six figure salaries and, and as you say, right, <laughs> getting paid whether your piece runs or not. Yeah. But I, you know, I saw this at the Daily Beast. We had all these amazing young people, Max Reed, Maureen O'Connor, Ben Crayer, Sam Jacobs, Liz Goodman, all these people went on to do amazing things. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of largely, unfortunately, banished to the corner a lot of the time because it was like, wait, well, let's get Carl Bernstein to write something. Let's get, <laughs> all right, Osama, Osama, we took out Osama. Let's get uh, Salman Rushdie to weigh in, Yeah, you know, which would just cost like 10 grand and not really result in anything better than young person could have whipped together from aggregation you right. know, in five minutes. And then you could have gotten a great column about it. I mean, it's just that whole thinking of, you know, when people come to the web, really what they want is this just gargantuan byline rather than a great piece and who cares, who really cares who wrote it. It's so, yeah, it's very, it's, it's so alien to what we do today. The closest thing that we have to that now is probably people with successful podcasts roping in their other famous friends to also do podcasts on their network. <laughs> yeah. You just need a retweeted by famous people. You that's don't need, true. You don't need a written by famous. Maybe people. a text message to encourage a retweet is a, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> All right, before we move on to topic number three, let's take a quick break. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringer's Gambling Podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, and you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta. And they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's make-believe casino, where Sal makes up props on on all kinds of things. Sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out, Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Topic number three, David, um, locker room talk, but not the Trumpian kind. (laughs) This is, this is a different, this is a different sort. I I thought of this because I was um, reading through the NFL wire stories on Monday morning. Uh What did I miss? And I came across what might be the longest but emptiest quote (laughs) in the history of professional football. Oh, I love this. By Bucks coach Dirk Ketter. He was talking about Ryan Fitzpatrick, who, uh. Pulled out a win over the Jets. This is what he said. Gritty. That's what Ryan is. He's a get it done kind of guy. He's going to make some plays that you don't expect to. And he might miss a couple of plays you'd like him to make. He's a tough guy. He's a competitor. And you can't have enough of those kind of guys on your team. There are just no content in that at all. No content. Yes. And it was included in full. <laughs> in the story right. the next morning. The same piece, this is just an AP piece, um, quoted Josh McCown, losing quarterback. Very frustrating, McCown said, adding, we understand this is the National Football League. Just, first of all, just imagine <laughs> writing that down. <laughs> we understand this is the National Football League. You've got to bring your A game every week. We just didn't come out and play at the level we're capable of. Whew. Yeah. It's... um. <laughs> It's amazing because I sort of think we're past the era where you just write down really boring non insights that players say, but it, but they they still float out there among us, right? Or slightly spoiled again by the way we consume media now, because you know there are there are <laughs> intrepid old fashioned uh, newspaper readers like yourself and like people you know older you. than us. Um, I think the, I think <laughs> I'm that, on the young end of yeah, the curve. Thank you. I think that there's I think that, you know, a huge a huge percentage of people today can will consume their 
beat reporting through other through unaffiliated sports blogs who take the greatest hits of that day's beat reporting, quote the best paragraph and write, you know, some just additional fluff before and after. Right. Or just say, God, Josh McCown sucked last night. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You You don't even need the quote. Yeah. I think I'm in I like I'm inoculated for most of this stuff. Yeah, my, so my, I think there's two, two, four, at least two forces at work. One is the players don't say anything. Sure. They don't have any, there's nothing. Certainly there's, say less and less as the decades go by. Nothing in it for them, right? Just not, why, why, why would I say something interesting after the game yeah. when you're just going to quote the bad thing and there's no upside? All you can do is get, in your, get yourself into trouble. And if you have something good and uplifting to say, say it to the Players' Tribune. But the second thing is this continued tyranny of the quote in writing. Yeah. And I even feel this as a reporter. You're going along, typing along, type a paragraph, type a paragraph. And it's like this little bell goes off in your head. Ooh, it's, this should be a quote. It's about a beat. It's, a quote it's a, should it, go here. A it's, beat it's, is a it's good a word. Beat in the, it's a beat in the flow of the story. Yeah. yeah. And it should, like, it should punctuate like every third paragraph. And if you're not quoting something, you're doing the wrong thing. Right. And the story should always end on a quote. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, there were some amazing examples this week. This is about the Rams game. They're talking about the Rams wide receiver, Robert Woods. Here's Jared Goff, according to the LA Times. He's as big as anybody on this team. The way he works, the way he brings guys along, <laughs> his attitude daily, and the way he communicates with me is impressive. Okay? Now, that's, again, talking about non-insights. But here's Sammy Watkins two paragraphs later. The way he practices, the way he plays the game, the way he does everything kind of moves this wide receiver's group. He's a pro. So they actually were not only were neither of those insights about Robert Woods, they were the same non-insight. Sure quoted back to back yeah i mean i think that part of that is just the i mean there i don't i don't know the the details of those teams or those writers but but you know we see around around the our our corners of the journalism world that that's a lot of it's functional right that if you want to write a piece about uh you want to write a piece about uh you know n- name a player ryan Fit- fitzpatrick then you call the you call oh, the God. buccaneers press office Right. And you ask them permission to talk to various players of theirs about Ryan Fitzpatrick. They decide who you can talk to a lot of the time. You can ask for specific players, but they're they're the ones providing you access. They the the players know ahead of time who what you're going to be talking about. And uh, the whole thing comes together and, and, and in the most sort of like anodyne possible way. All of that is even setting aside the fact that you're setting out to write a piece about Ryan Fitzpatrick and how, and, and, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, that was your first mistake. Right. Well, but I'm just saying like, yes, exactly. Like instead of spending time in the locker room and seeing what you get and seeing what, and chasing a story, a lot of the time you're like pitching a story to the team and yeah. having, and having to make do with what, you know, the thing we talked well, about, if he was and also, I would just say after the game, Sure. He's the winning quarterback if he yeah, did yeah. something relatively extraordinary. It's like people want to read a story about Ryan Fitzpatrick, yes. whether anybody says so anything you, or not. So you kind of have that you have the framework of the story and you're just in, it's a it's a story in search of the beat, in search of the in search of the quote that's going to fill in that gap. It's Mad Libs. It's yeah, just it's sports writing Mad Libs. I, it reminds me of a I don't even remember what the quote was, but there was some screenwriter or some TV writer who was saying something to the effect of. There are some people will write like a, an episode of ER and just kind of put blah, 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 medical stuff, like literally write those <laughs> words and ho- and call their doctor friend to fill it in. Um, and it's you're probably better off having a having like someone with actual medical experience that's less of a page to page writer because it just flows so much more naturally when it when it comes you know, that way. But, yeah, you're just like if you're just leaving giant blanks where the most important part of the story goes, <laughs> then, uh, yeah, you're probably going to end up with something with, you know, with a laugher or two in your in your uh, resume. And we've seen two different approaches, right? There's the Bill Barnwell thing where you just Bill's just going to write something about 
actually how Ryan Fitzpatrick played. Yeah. And he's happy to write, they won the game, but Ryan Fitzpatrick sucked. Yeah. And shouldn't ever start a football game, an organized football game anywhere again, if if appropriate. Right. right. The other way would just be to just take these out of the story. Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, I, I almost forgivable. I always make fun of bad questions on on uh, TV, you know, after the games end. Yeah. But in a way, it's like when you watch a football game on TV, I understand television, you kind of want to see the guy. You want to hear him. Mm-hmm. Even if he's, I mean, you can, of course, ask better questions, but even if it's just something totally anodyne, it's something about seeing the winning quarterback talking sure. after the big start yeah, of the sharing, game. Sharing, seeing like, you know, sweaty Joe Flacco, even if he had a terrible game, it sort of like justifies your fandom in a certain way to see everything, to feel, get that vibe of everything he went through during the course of the game. Yeah. Yeah. The expression on his face. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. But then when it's put on the page, digital or analog page, it's just like, I mean, this is, here's, uh, can I give you a couple more? Uh, how about Brett Hundley <laughs> after the uh, Packers tramped over the Bears? It feels amazing. It's truly amazing, especially a rivalry game. There was a lot going into this game. I just thank the team. <laughs> I mean, just, you're not even, he didn't even describe anything that he did. He just reeled off like five he, things in a row. I, can I ask you, oh, read another one. You have another oh, one. Just there. one more. This is Tom Brady. Uh, it's always hard to win in the NFL. I just like any references to the NFL or yeah. National Football League. Certainly on the road. We found a way to do it last year and we're off to a good start this year. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to save my I'm going to save my related rant about just uh, about color commentators and play by play people that use the phrase National Football League when talking about the NFL <laughs> on an NFL broadcast uh, for another day. Um, and and also, I mean, listen. Uh, Tom Brady, uh, I, I'm going to give that one a pass. Like if you're, if you're, you know, Tom Brady is, is sufficiently, um, uh, sufficiently a, a mega star that you would of course include a quote from him in any article, but you're also interviewing the world's most famous robot. So like, I'm not quite sure <laughs> <laughs> that there's, you expect anything more from him in any instance. Um, but uh, it's just a it's it's just a, a really weird wor- world of you know there are these expectations from from the editors you know to get these quotes in the paper. My question for you, as someone with much more experience between the two of us on this sort of thing, do you think that like professional athlete media training in 2017 involves teaching players how to say the most the emptiest things possible? I know it does, and it starts in college. Uh, or even before. Sure. You know, I think one of the things I'm whenever I follow high school recruiting, I'm amazed at how young kids, 16, 17, 18 years old, can use really anodyne quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because they've in 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 within their case, a lot of it's just experience. They've just been interviewed yeah. so many times. Yeah. There's this new thing on college recruiting where a player, whenever he's asked, like, uh, have, you know, have you thought about your decision where you're gonna commit? He, the recruit goes, this isn't a four-year decision I'm making. This is a 40-year decision. And like, but like I've seen like tons of recruits say that. Like they've developed their own like glossary of cliche. Yes. And I just think it's because they're getting, you know, first of all, you have they're getting interviewed early and earlier. So they just learn. Uh-huh. And like, ooh, I'm not gonna say anything controversial again. Yeah. And then in college, they start like actual formal training. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's also the element of seeing the the success that is that people like, you know, LeBron James to throw a, a name out there had by being, you know, every it seems like a few years ago, there would be one or two like, you know, NBA prospects where you would get the like the, this time during the college basketball season, there'd be a freshman where people would be just like, wow, he is really mature. He is really media savvy. And what they were saying was he's he's he already has the ability to say nothing. You know, yeah, he's, oh yeah, he's already totally. got it. 
Now, if you look at like the, you know, 2018 NBA mock drafts, you have guys like Michael Porter and Marvin Bagley who are who are as good as, you know, like a 15 year NBA pro. I mean, it's all like this is this is part of the process. This is part of learning how to be learning how to be a pro. And like you said, people are they're getting interviewed earlier and earlier and people are paying attention to them earlier and earlier. and, And and yeah, I mean, it's just it's that sort of preparation on the part of athletes that you described is just like, that's in a lot of ways that's killing, like that's what's killing journalism. I mean, that's not, not the whole industry, but that's the problem with all these pieces. It's that they just don't say anything. Oh yeah. There's not, and it's not, there's not even opportunity to like, to veer your story in another direction based on something that someone says mm-hmm. we have, we get, we, you know, at, at the ringer, you, it happens a lot more in football. I think there's just so many more players and so many more, so many of those players are, you know, you know, kind of came up from nowhere, haven't been, haven't been superstars for that long. And, and uh, you know, they just don't get the same level of attention from the PR department. Um, and and sometimes people can follow those, follow those stories in different directions, but um, it's just amazing. It's, it's amazing how, how bland, how <laughs> it's amazing that old newspapers just don't speak to me in the way that Barstool Sports <laughs> does these days. <laughs> David, as um, Sammy Watkins said of Robert Woods, you're a pro. Thanks for joining me this week. That's the Press Box. We're back next week with more hot takes. But all things media, he's David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. See ya. Yeah.